Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You Australians use words like social cohesion to talk about the positive aspect of what you're trying to create in Australian society to mitigate against these threats. When you turn sections of a population against their own principles and values, and you've achieved something pretty radical. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode... Nick Rasmussen, inaugural executive director of the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, and Dr. Christy Campion, lecturer of terrorism studies at Charles Sturt University, join Will Stoltz to unpack the ways terrorism and violent extremism are evolving, and how Australia and the US are combating these threats. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Nick, Christy, many thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Will. It's great to be visiting here in Canberra. So there's a wealth of expertise between the two of you on the broad subject of, of terrorism and extremism. And, and I want to talk about um, terrorism in the United States, in Australia, and, and I guess where you see this uh, broad, broad topic, broad phenomenon heading. But this episode is going to be released around the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks by al-Qaeda, which is, uh, which is rather staggering because it means that many of the students here at the NSC, uh, well, more and more of them will include people who have been born after 9-11. Um, and so it's entirely conceivable that their kind of perception of terrorism is perhaps going to be more shaped by events like the Christchurch massacre rather than um, – you know, the kind of vivid reference that we have um, of all the images of, of 9-11. So I suppose I want to start then this conversation on the subject of Islamic extremism and terrorism, um, which has certainly not faded away because we saw just recently um, some large-scale uh, large attacks by al-Shabaab in um, Somalia. Um, uh, Christy, perhaps you might be able to start us off um, by giving us a bit of a broad overview of what the condition of these um, Islamic terrorist groups are kind of 21 years on from the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for the question. The the it, Look, it's a big one. It's a broad one in that when it comes to terrorism, that's, that's motivated by extreme iterations of Islam, such as violent Salafi jihadism. It's important to recognize that the ideology that exists behind the diverse movements, whether we're talking al-Shabaab, al-Qaeda, Islamic State, the the core ideological tenets remain strong. So even though it has been so many years since the attack on 9-11, we're still dealing with groups, organizations, and lone actors that are motivated by very similar drivers and, and share that ideological connectivity. And so that really means that this sort of threat isn't going to just disappear or fade away. It's going to keep evolving and reforming and finding new centers of gravity around the world. Fascinating. I mean, Nick, um, President Biden also recently announced the targeted killing of um, Ayman al-Zawahiri, um, a key architect of the 9-11 attacks. I importantly, uh, he was found in Afghanistan, you know, in, in, in Kabul, none, uh, no less. Um, I guess what should this tell us about the willingness of the Taliban government in Afghanistan to continue to kind of harbor and support some of these groups um, like al-Qaeda? Well, it it certainly brought home that the Taliban cannot be looked to to simply live up to commitments made under the Doha Peace Accords process and that if the United States, if um, other partner countries around the world are going to engage the government of Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban government of Afghanistan going forward, it will have to be on much more on a basis of uh, of trust and verify. Uh, we simply won't be able to take 
the Taliban's word for it in terms of their adherence to the commitments they've made. Um, I can't say that uh, I was shocked to find out that there was ongoing contact, connectivity, engagement between the Taliban and senior levels of al-Qaeda. That's certainly no surprise and I would suspect my, my colleague, Dr. Campion, would not have been surprised either. But to have had it happen in such a blatant way with mm. uh, a figure such as Zawahiri being located um, so proximate to leadership in, in Kabul, uh, it almost seems like it was flouting uh, or, or flaunting rather um, their, their disregard for the commitments made. And I think you would have seen that in the way that the Biden administration responded, um, speaking very clearly that uh, this has undermined trust. What, what, not to say that there was trust, but it certainly made it more difficult mm. to envision any kind of trusting or even bare bones diplomatic relationship between an Afghan government led by the Taliban and other countries around the world. We're a long way away from that. And is Afghanistan, do you think, is that the region where we should be um, most concerned about? Or is it is it the case that the kind of focal point for these groups, the center of gravity has more shifted to places like North Africa? Well, I think it, what we the words my colleagues and friends in the United States counterterrorism community, community use again and again and again to talk about the threat landscape right now is diverse, complex, complicated. <laughs> and there just isn't one place mm. you can look. And I think the 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 strike on Zawahiri it was a reminder that core al-Qaeda, the part of al-Qaeda that was tied most directly to the planning and carrying out of the 9-11 attacks is still something to be reckoned with in South Asia. But that diverse landscape of al-Qaeda affiliates around the world um, also poses pretty significant threats, mostly in a regional conflict a context, mostly um, in a context where they – where these groups adhere themselves or attach themselves to local conflicts aimed at um, addressing local issues or concerns that they have. But certainly for Australian and American diplomats, Australian and American business um, persons and citizens living around the world, these, these al-Qaeda-linked groups, other ISIS-linked groups remain a significant threat. You mentioned North Africa, but you could certainly look to sub-Saharan Africa. You could mm -hmm. certainly look to uh, Iraq and Syria, the Levant, uh, and I would argue even in on the Arabian Peninsula is still being significant concerns. So again, diverse, complex, complicated mm. uh, as a threat landscape. Even as we may have um, worked our way to to a place where that large scale catastrophic mass casualty attack of the sort we saw um, in Bali or in uh, at 9-11 is far less likely because of the counterterrorism pressure that's been put on these groups. In a local context, we still very much face a very threatening landscape. Christy, did you want to um, respond to any of that before we move to other <laughs> varieties of terrorism? Look, yeah, I, I would just make the quick mention that prior 2021, the Global Terrorism Index still ranked the Taliban as the most deadly terrorist organization in mm. the world. Now, in 2021, that, that changed to Islamic State. And, and that's assessed based on how many uh, people are killed per attack. Now, I think that when it comes to organizations such as the Taliban, I think we also have to recognize the level of internal complexity, which is, sure, we might have some elements that are committed to you know, uh, gaining some sort of legitimacy on a on a global stage, but we'll also have elements that are deeply integrated with those uh, hanging on elements that are extreme that that endorse the use of terrorism that, and that endorse the use of terrorism against Western targets as well. Mm. Um, and, and those ties aren't just ideological; they might be family ties, they might be um, uh, cultural ties, social ties. And so, it's not simply a matter of I think expecting that. The, the Taliban as a homogenous organization is going to all move in one direction. Uh, as Nick pointed out, this is complex. We'll have bits going in random directions or highly ideologically motivated directions for, for quite a while to come. And um, so, you know, I, I mentioned Islamic State and when it comes, you know, to, to that uh, network as well, it's the exact same thing where you have uh, a variety of different contexts influencing the trajectory that the group ultimately takes. And this is one of the really complicated parts um, of 
of the story right now with what's happening with violent Salafi jihadism, where we're sort of at the cusp of this period where we had some of these organizations actually step into humanitarian roles mm. during COVID-19, uh, which meant that they were essentially filling unmet needs for citizens in a relatively mainstream way. Now, that's going to have an impact in the future, and that's going to impact on how those communities view those organizations. They might not necessarily be viewed as illegitimate by locals as what we, uh, you know, mm. in Australia and around the world might uh, might typically view them. Mm. Let me jump in and add on that because I think, Will, you raised the recent attack in Mogadishu. Um, Al-Shabaab has always been a very challenging counterterrorism problem for the United States and its partners that focus on East Africa and the Horn of Africa for precisely the reasons Dr. Campion raised. Shabab is pursuing a localized agenda aimed at establishing governance. It's not simply sitting there thinking, how do we attack the West? How do mm. we reach out and touch um, the United States homeland with attacks? There are times when we certainly worry about that, but they have a multifaceted agenda and much of their agenda focuses on trying to exercise governance and control in a in a uniquely Somali context, which includes provision of social services, um, demonstrating that the that the existing Somali government is incapable of providing that level of, of service and support to the population. And again, that's what gives um, the organization um, some degree of legitimacy in a in a in a specifically East African context, even as we from out, from outside the region look at a group like Al Shabaab and say Al Qaeda affiliate. Mm. Well. Um, speaking of groups that kind of have quite a, a multifaceted and at times difficult to pin down agenda, I want to turn to the um, the topic of uh, the domestic terror threat within the United States. Um, I think what's been difficult perhaps for outside observers of the US to firmly grasp is uh, in recent years is, is who precisely the domestic terrorist groups are. And I think that that kind of a, happens because there appears to be now this kind of spectrum of radicalism um, that starts at one end within quarters of otherwise kind of mainstream political movements. So you're kind of loony Trumpers, for example. But then that that spectrum kind of stretches out to encompass what are kind of quite openly uh, self-organized militia like the the Oath Keepers and then goes kind of further still to include groups actively seeking to attack the, uh, the US government or incite um like racial violence, for example. Um, so, so Christy, I guess when we are confronted with this kind of complex spectrum of radicalization and um, and potentially kind of violent ideologies, do we actually need a new conception of of what terrorism or what a terrorist group is? Like, is that is that is that even the right kind of language to be using to be talking about these movements? Look, I, I think uh, the, the language we use around terrorist and extremist threats certainly matters re regardless of the group and regardless of the context. One of my beliefs is that our current definitional landscape for the defining of violent extremism is actually sufficient. Mm. What we need to orientate ourselves more towards, I think, is understanding um, that you can't just homogenize jihadists, you can't just uh, homogenize the extreme right. And so when people think about the, the extreme right, particularly in, in the US context, they really do think, uh, about, you know, uh, the neo-Nazi movement and they think about, um, the movements that are affiliated with, uh, motorcycle organizations mm. as well. Uh, so what that really does though is it creates a bit of, obscurity for um, maybe the the general listener or the sort of the general follower of this sort of um, context in that they get this sort of really simplified, you know, almost reductive idea about what this threat looks like. Mm. Uh, and the problem is, is that the threat is actually much more complex than that. It's very idiosyncratic. So by that, I mean, you might have an individual who um, might um, have a Nazi flag in their bedroom, but they might be championing a republic mm. and, they, and they might be um, deeply committed to certain aspects of the US constitution, but not others. And so it's really important that we recognize that with, uh, particularly with the extreme right, um, what I would argue is because you don't have a foundational text. So with, you know, with uh, violent Salafi jihadism, you have the, uh, the foundational text, which is the Quran. You don't have that in the extreme right. You don't have a single anchor document, which means that the way it manifests is really open uh, to being uh, adapted to an individual or to a particular context. The the kind of loose shorthand um, 
phrase you sometimes hear in, in the United States when we talk about that exactly that phenomenon that Christie was talking about right now is a salad bar approach <laughs> to ideology, picking and choosing and selecting bits and pieces of different ideologies and, and bringing together in a in in often a very unique or idiosyncratic form, a radicalization pathway for a single individual. And I think that's worth pausing on a minute, Will, because I think when I think about the domestic terrorism landscape in the United States, it's group affiliation and group identity that don't seem to play nearly as prominent a role in that phenomenon as we would have talked about in terms of the Salafi jihadist um, form of terrorism that we would have seen in the United States. It puts law enforcement intelligence services in a much more challenging situation when they can't rely on group affiliation. The idea that someone will have sworn by Ott will have kind of picked up the badge mm. and put it around their neck and said, I wish to be part of ISIS. We have a legal framework that deals well with that. Um, just simply making that statement, I want to join the Islamic State, will put you in violation of a federal statute uh, that pro prohibits material support to a designated terrorist organization. And so the, the United States law enforcement community is very well equipped to manage that that scenario. It's far more challenging when, again, in this kind of salad bar of ideologies approach where group identity and group affiliation is a secondary or tertiary factor, may not even be a factor at all. It forces us to think differently about the threat on the domestic side of the equation. And the way we must think about it in that context is about behavior and action. Because again, in the context of the of the United States, you're you're allowed to engage in all kinds of lawful but awful conversations uh, and engagements with your fellow citizens. It is when you take that to the step of actually carrying out violent acts or targeting your fellow citizens or threatening your fellow citizens, actually taking engaging in behavior that will cause harm to others, that's what will trigger law enforcement to be engaged. And that's a different paradigm for our law enforcement compared to, again, to flashing back to the most of the post 9-11 period where chasing down individuals who had signed up to al-Qaeda or one of al-Qaeda's affiliates um, or traveled to a war zone, a conflict zone for the purpose of joining one of those organizations. That was a more orderly and, and structured way for us to think about um, mitigating and disrupting those organizations. So it strikes me there that th there is a real risk then of um, a group uh, or an in even just an individual falling through the gaps because this process of counterterrorism that we've developed for um, Islamic-based threats predicated on being able to develop kind of specialists within, within agencies who can develop a deep, deep understanding of the kind of anthropological factors around the group, the ideological factors, you know, learn the language – um, they can become incredibly proficient at being able to understand these organizations. Now with this kind of, as you mentioned, this kind of salad bar approach to ideology where we have this kind of ever-growing, ever-more esoteric range of ideological motivators means you can't have within a counterterrorism organization kind of a complete specialist because everything's shifting. So that idea of having to kind of wait for the behaviors and the actions to manifest surely means that there's a great, great risk that you'll you know, something that might just look like a law enforcement issue could end up man manifesting as a as a, a terrorist issue, and you've and it's kind of fallen through the gaps. I mean, are you? Does that make you more anxious that we are missing something? Yes and no. Again, I still have a lot of trust and faith in my colleagues in the American counterterrorism community. But what I would urge them is something I, I think I would describe as a bit of an epiphany I had when I left government service: the degree of expertise, knowledge, data, understanding with respect to this second group, second bucket or basket that we've been talking about in this conversation, I think far more of that exists outside government than inside government right now. Why? Because most of the readily available information, not readily available, the available information about these domestic extremists is available in open source. Their social media postings, their manifestos, their um, um, their engagement with, with media, it is far less of a matter where we need clandestine intelligence collection to figure out what um, groups, individuals are thinking, planning, plotting, mm. etc. So all of that infrastructure that the government has built over time to attack the, the Salafi jihadist group-based threat is still very much useful, required, necessary, um, worthy of sustained investment. 
because that piece of the threat has not gone away, has not even significantly diminished mm. in many ways. We just also have to pivot and be able to be more agile in the way we think about dealing with this this other form of terrorism because I think it's certainly in the United States, it feels like that's where the center of gravity of threat feels to have shifted in recent years. If you asked most Americans if they woke up tomorrow morning and there had been an attack overnight and they were asked without any facts at all to identify, hmm, is this likely an ISIS-linked attack or is this likely an attack from some domestic extremist grabbing on to some um, narrative tied to our domestic political situation? They'd almost certainly point to the latter rather than the former. I certainly would. And and I, I guess I would say we have not yet reconfigured our CT, counterterrorism, architecture in the way we would ultimately need to to be as effective in dealing with that version of the problem as we were in dealing with the first version. I think um, building on that architecture comment as well, I, I think one of the things you intimated earlier is really important, which is um, the the issue of membership, which is that we almost became comfortable with how violent Salafi jihadist groups conceptualize membership, particularly with Islamic State and the swearing of Bayat. Now, why that's important is that that is something that is quite different in the extreme right context where you might reasonably expect that Islamic State will claim an attack that maybe they had nothing to do with because it's within their interests. By contrast, groups in the extreme right can often be very selective, very choosy. Uh, so, you know, you might have an individual um, who is maybe um, a fringe dweller to an organization or, or reject from the organization as what has happened. Uh, and they might commit an attack and they might claim it in the name of the group and the group turns around and goes, oh, no, thank you. Mm. <laughs> uh, so they're much more, uh, they, they more tightly control the narrative around their group and they more tightly control membership. Now, in an Australian context, that's going to be something tricky because I'm not sure that our architecture is entirely um, adapted to some of those nuances that mm. may occur in how we consider membership to the extreme right as an ideological community versus membership to the an extreme right organization that is known that may or may not be be designated. The other side of that and what flows on from that membership discussion is really about initiative and, and the initiative of the extremist. Now, where we might have seen in the propaganda of uh, Islamic State or Al-Qaeda encouraging members to to take lone actor attacks um, and, and they almost provide them with um, a modus operandi, they provide them with targets. With extreme right threats, um, the initiative is slightly different where we're seeing the people who are seizing it are generally young lone actors and there's a lot of um, internal contradiction at times to their targeting uh, and indeed to, to the way that their attacks manifest. So it is a slightly... Um, difficult field where there's some nuance that's specific to both different threat natures. And I think that it changes so often and so frequently, it's nearly impossible for, for anyone to, to have that real time, uh, expertise. We're, we're kind of all behind the ball right now, I think. Mm. Well, and, and I think one of the things that's been the most disturbing in the American context is that some of our most horrific attacks in recent times have had a distinctly racial component to the to the, the perpetrators ultimately found to be somebody who um, was held had deeply held views about the superiority of of the white race uh, or of the you know, believed in the kind of de dehumanization of African Americans or. Um, Hispanic Americans, I think of El Paso and Buffalo as being two of the most uh, recent significant American um, terrorist attacks, um, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Again, the, the actor in, in each case had a distinct narrative in his head, in his mind that dehumanized um, a community uh, of another of another faith, another race, another ethnicity, in a way that in his in that person's mind it it rendered that that community uh, a legitimate target, and that's deeply upsetting. Uh, um, one of the things I think I've taken away from my most recent visit to to Australia this last couple of weeks is that you Australians use words like social cohesion to talk about the positive aspect of what you're trying to create in Australian society to mitigate against these threats. 
we don't have that same sense of, I think, positivity around social cohesion in the United States. We talk about our fractured, polarized mm. society, and that's the inverse of a mm. socially cohesive society. We haven't yet turned the page to figure out how to create strategies that will deliver that result. We're still working very hard to manage the consequences of the fractured, polarized politics um, that I think lead to this kind of attack. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So I want to shift the conversation to Australia shortly because, Christy, I know you've written a um, fairly comprehensive history of, of terrorism in Australia. But on the topic of history, I want to ask in the context of the United States, how much of what is happening at the moment is actually all that new? Because the reality is is that you know, the United States does have a kind of violent or well, more, more violent political culture than I would say a country like Australia does, you know, and we can go back to things like Waco, to the Oklahoma City bombings. We can go back further still to, you know, Ku Klux Klan. We can go back, of course, even to the Civil War and to see, um, you know, ground swells of extremist groups undertaking violence against the state, against other racial groups, against other religious groups. So there's, it, it strikes me, at least at a very broad level, there is kind of a, this is just part of a, America's character. So, so how much of what is happening now is actually all that new? Christy, I might give that one to you to kick us off. Oh, look, I don't, uh, I don't pretend to be an expert in, in American history, history, that's for sure. One of the things I will say is that when we do see um, quite significant or, or widespread uh, incidences that, that do indicate that there is this broad division in society, there are two ways that we can look at it. One, we can look at it internally and we can go, okay, well, clearly there's, um, you know, contextual factors here as relating to um, socioeconomic situations, demographics, all that sort of thing. The other side of it um, is to look externally and say, okay, well, is there a reason why this sentiment has swelled at this time? Is there anything else that might be behind it that is external to to what is happening within American borders? And, and I think that now, it, as global politics currently are, it's more important than ever that when we are facing these groundswells, we don't just internalise it. We also think, who else could be manipulating this from afar? Who else do we know or do we suspect might have a vested interest in ensuring destabilisation and chaos inside the borders of Western democracies? Uh, so I think it's important that we we consider both of those things rather than uh, attributing it to one or the other. Well, I'm going to agree with your your, your the premise of your question, Will, pretty, pretty much without argument. There, this is not new in American history or American life. What perhaps feels different in this particular moment is, I would say, volume, scope, prevalence, and lethality. Um, lethality, I'll start at the, the last of those. Lethality because, again, our gun laws have, have actually moved in the speaking personally, in the wrong direction, not the right direction in recent years. So it's even in some ways easier than it had been in earlier phases of American history for someone to have access to the most lethal uh, of weapons. Um, but but volume and prevalence is, feels different in this current phase as well. And I think that's in part because some of the ideologies that Christy and I have been talking or forms of ideology that have been talked about, we've been talking about in the context of domestic extremism in the US sit very much adjacent to mainstream ideologies mm. that are 
part of mainstream politics in the United States right now and it becomes a spectrum um, and that just means the, the main – you will often hear the phrase the mainstreaming of extremism mm. um, and I think that is something that I'm concerned about, that it becomes OK for not only ex- – for, for politicians to use um, dog whistle type words or formulations that kind of end up being heard by significant – portions of the population as permission to hold extreme thoughts or to even contemplate extreme actions. And that's not something that I, I think we would have seen in mainstream U.S. politics in recent – or up, up until recent times. So that to me makes this phase uniquely concerning. Mm. Well, I suppose to turn to Australia then, I mean those factors that Nick's outlined there, Christy, like volume, um, scale, presence, lethality, I mean that's um, – kind of where Australia differs quite dramatically, isn't it? Look, look, in in some ways, but I think a a lot of what Nick was just saying really resonates with what we are seeing here in Australia, which is uh, that the, you know, the the principles and procedures of our democracy are increasingly being challenged uh, and challenged by extremists in in terms of anti-government extremists and their ideologies and and how they promote uh, action. And also, obviously, it's been exploited by some of the mainstream as well. And so it is a, a pretty manifold area. In terms of lethality, uh, obviously, uh, in Australia, we are um, in a pretty unique place when it comes to uh, particularly with shootings. Obviously, mm. we have a very different context when it comes to gun legislation. Uh, however, it's worth noting that uh, that when it comes to the extreme right in Australia and, and around the world, that firearms remain their weapon of choice and they are always looking at ways that they can get their hands on them, whether it's black market, grey market, but also more innovative uh, situations such as uh, 3D printed guns and and that really uh, challenging area uh, where it's a matter of not just a matter of border security um, and legislation, but also the the um, maturity of of the relevant authorities in being able to identify and get ahead of those innovations uh, when they occur. So there, there's been um, a bit of de- debate and discussion, I think, around Australian gun laws in the last couple of years. And one of the reasons for that, I think, was that uh, a an individual who at the minute is subject to prosecution, uh, who was uh, seemingly motivated by an extreme right-wing ideology, did legally acquire a weapon, did legally acquire a firearm, and that did play a part in the attack. So while our situation is quite robust, there's obviously still room for improvement. Um, You mentioned before um, external factors influencing um, uh, domestic groups. I mean, we we know that obviously um, the online environment has meant a, there's a kind of globalization of extremism that's going on. But in terms of something that's more targeted and more deliberate, how much is um, state sponsorship of terrorism, uh, terrorist groups, either within Australia or in the United States, um, a, a big factor? Or is it just the kind of osmosis of ideas from across the world that's, that's driving the radicalization? I guess I think of it, it's a great question because it's much on everybody's mind, you know, much the same way foreign interference conversations dominate politics and public policy discussions here in Australia. They do for us at home in the United States as well. Slightly different twist um, with I think obviously China being the, the predominant actor that you're concerned most about in that space here in Australia. For the United States, it feels most like Russia is the is the threat closest to the door. I still think of that threat as being slightly attenuated though. It's more about a, a state actor's efforts to just poison and pollute the the political environment that then just serves as an accelerant or a catalyst for the, all of the factors and, and um, phenomenon that Christy and I have been talking about. It's less – it's not quite as direct and linear. Um, mm. I, I would not expect, for example, that we would un- uncover evidence that some Russian operative had mm. um, engaged with some far-right or white supremacist organization or actor in the United States and enabled them or or accelerated their journey towards radicalization. But in this, in this slightly hands-off way, deniable way, Russian cyber actors can just, as I said, pollute the environment in a way that just leads naturally to those outcomes 
even if and, and their fingerprints are nowhere near it. And I don't really have any way to put a sense of volume or or size or scale or scope on that. It's more of a feel thing mm. um, based on what our intelligence um, organizations in the United States have said about um, Russian ambitions to, to um, affect our politics. Why wouldn't they take this next step and try to foment actual unrest, violence, politically motivated violence to, to include terrorism. Look, I, I agree with what Nick said, and I think the the great point there was the the poisoning and the polluting factor. Now, that is um, a really critical factor because when you turn or sections of a population against their own principles and values, and you've achieved something pretty radical, mm-hmm. uh, that has created almost um, a, a group of stakeholders in the community that actually no longer believe in the values of their own community, the values that, that raised them, the values that nurtured them. And, and I also agree that uh, that the, the situation has become much more delicate in a way. So in Australia in the past, we have had state-sponsored terrorism. We have had um, state governments support uh, some some pretty dastardly activities here in Australia. And foreign state governments, not foreign state, not yes. state governments. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not a Western Australia thing. Uh... <laughs> we won't talk about Tasmania. Um, so one of the mechanisms there was actually providing extremist organisations cover by the embassies, and this would actually allow members of violent extremist organisations to enter Australia. Why did they want to do that? They wanted to do that because they wanted to recruit, but more importantly, they wanted money. So fundraising, the financial aspect was really critical um, to, to, the, to the historical situation. Now, in a contemporary context, I would argue that the, the financing of violent extremist movements is just as critical now as it ever was, uh, but also that we need to be more aware of the um, obviously illicit funding mechanisms, but also licit funding mechanisms. So obviously here in Canberra, we we were subject to the Freedom Convoy for quite some time. More needs to be known as to where that money came from. Now we know it was portions of it were coming from uh, uh, extreme right wing facets in Australia. We know that some of it was coming from there, but not all of it. Um, and if we were to identify where all this money was coming from every and account for every dollar and cent, then that will give us a much better picture of, okay, which parts of Australian society are dissatisfied and why are they dissatisfied? Is this uh, a real grievance that's driving them or is it an imagined one? Mm. Um, ultimately, whether it's real or imagined, that doesn't undercut its power in the slightest but it will help inform our policy responses so that we can build towards that social cohesion mm-hmm. that here in Australia we are so, um, I think, proud of now. But, you know, the, the the funding point is a really good one because I think it just shows that a state actor that's seeking to engage in information operations or covert influence operations to affect the political environment here in Australia doesn't need millions and millions of dollars to do that. It can be done with relatively modest sums. It can be done in a way that can be very hard to trace, track, or identify sources of funding. It can seem crowdsourced or um, very grassroots in nature. I, I think our Canadian colleagues would, would argue they, they went through much the same problem um, in Ottawa when they with the Occupy uh, Ottawa situation, trying to figure out exactly what actors were involved at what level um, can prove pretty challenging. Mm. Um, and if there's a, a nefarious state actor lurking, lingering in the background, um, it's a pretty effective tool of statecraft for, for some of our adversaries. On that topic of um, financing of these groups, is that, a, is that a weak point in our approach to countering terrorism? Because it strikes me that um, it, you know, in Australia in particular, we've done a pretty good job of suppressing this type of violence down to a level that it can be dealt with largely by local law enforcement. Um, and so we've had successes at that kind of tactical level of counterterrorism. But in terms of the countering of the financing issue, because that that is that can't necessarily be done by local law enforcement. That has to be done by very specialist agencies, and not necessarily even something that you could do through you know through the courts. It's not you can't arrest your way out of um, that problem. It's something that perhaps requires more specialized powers. Is that is that is that something we need to do better on? I guess 20 years on post 9-11 or 21 years on post 9-11, I feel like we're pretty much in the same place in terms of the fundamentals of our effort to um, 
prevent terrorist organizations from being funded. I don't mean that in a sense that progress hasn't been made because enormous progress has been made. We've basically made it extraordinarily difficult for the legitimate global banking system to be used by terrorist organizations. That's a massive accomplishment. They, they, their need Terrorist organizations by and large need to find workarounds and ways to subvert that system. They cannot exploit it as readily as they certainly could have you know, a couple of decades ago. The other fundamental truth though is that funding is rarely the, the barrier or obstacle to success for terrorist organizations in carrying out the kind of attacks they aspire to with only some rare exceptions. Um, do terrorist organizations stop short of doing something because they ran out of money, didn't have enough money, couldn't get their hands on the resources they need? So we can be maximally effective in the effort to constrain um, the financing of terrorist organizations and it still won't extinguish the threat, um, which doesn't mean you don't do it, doesn't mean you don't invest in doing it well and put resource behind it um, and, as I said, celebrate the amazing amount of work that has been done by our treasury colleagues in Australia and uh, United States and the Five Eyes partners to, to do this work, but it's a it's a challenge. It really is, and I think particularly where we've seen essentially the democratization of information when it comes to social media sites and to encrypted communications, where the money, however small an amount it may be, can have an almost um, asymmetrical effect. So whether the money is being devoted into the acquisition of resources, that's one thing. And that's something that I think is quite tightly controlled here in Australia, access to precursor materials and that sort of thing. But when it can be used to magnify narratives, uh, that's when it becomes a bit more interesting because obviously that's not just a matter of, um, you know, you can't arrest your way out of it. I absolutely agree with Nick. You have to engage with so many different stakeholders to try and um, prevent the dissemination of extremist messaging. But so often it doesn't look like extremist messaging um, and you're also having to rely on private uh, or, or corporate entities who it may not actually be in their best interest to, to, to help. It may not be in their best interest to stem or, or slow down their users in any respect. So it is uh, one of those more complex situations because you really can't, or at least um, you can't in an open source fashion, really identify which part of the messaging, which part of the narrative is going to be the part that mobilizes a lone actor or that galvanizes a group. Uh, we just don't understand it well enough yet. What, what Christy said really um, reminds me of kind of the, probably the biggest change in my thinking in my period since government service when I left almost four years ago. And that is the way the threat landscape has changed in the way that we've discussed over the last period of time. Um, suggest that government doesn't hold all the, the levers, the capability, the, the tools needed to deal with terrorism in its current form. Um, if that were ever true, and it might, you could argue that perhaps it was never true, it certainly isn't true with this set of domestic actors and extremists. And I've written about this a little bit in the United States context, talking about the requirement that we shift from a whole of government approach to counterterrorism, which we felt very good about. We, we in the post 9-11 period spent a lot of effort, time and energy trying to knit together all of the different elements of government that had a piece of our counterterrorism work and to make sure that those were coordinated, integrated and, and could achieve maximum effect. That seems woefully insufficient talking about the threat landscape the way Christie just described it a minute ago. You need to bring into that conversation beyond government, um, technology companies, civil society organizations, local and state government, mental health practitioners, public education um, professionals, advocates. That's just a handful of other sectors and stakeholders that I've ticked off in rapid fashion, but it suggests a requirement for a whole of society strategy effort to, to deal with this particular form of extremism, at least in the United States. And I think we're short of achieving that at this point. We started, we are starting to convene and create venues, fora, opportunities for that kind of multi-stakeholder engagement and conversation. And that stuff is hard. It doesn't come as easily as just holding a meeting and in the cabinet office or the situation room and everybody marches out with their orders and goes and you know does what they're told, you can't work the same way with the private sector, with um, civil society organizations and, and state and local actors. It's a much more challenging process. 
So um, we started our conversation uh, reflecting on the 21st anniversary um, since the 9-11 attacks, which were, I think it's fair to say, unprecedented as a terrorist attack that was one could really say was a strategic strike in terms of its in terms of its scale and its impact. I guess my, my final question for you today is to to ask about the potential likelihood of seeing uh, an attack on a similar scale. And I know that that's a really fraught place to go because I'm sure that if we asked analysts on you know first of September 2001, they may may have had similar answers to what you might give to, give us today. But ask you about whether we're likely to see an attack of that nature um, again and who or which group it might emanate from. Christy, I might give you that question first. Look, I would say, uh, speaking of the the two primary uh, ideological milieus we've been talking about today, which is one half the violent Salafi jihadist threat, the other half the extreme right-wing threat, uh, when it comes to how they talk about mass casualty terrorism, both are quite similar in that they they still celebrate it. They still discuss mass casualty terrorism in such a way as to suggest that it is something that they would, if they had the opportunity, the means, um, would seek to conduct. Now, that's for different reasons, obviously. So in the extreme right, we have quite a number of extremist organizations and individuals who are accelerationists, which basically means that they think that um, civilization is on the decline, that the entire um, society in which they exist is rotten and corroded, and it just needs one sharp push to fall over. Mm. And, and they want it to fall over because once you once you push over um, the existing government, once you've uh, destabilized society and all has fallen into chaos, only then uh, can you rebuild society in in the vision um, that you you seek to execute it in. Very similar with uh, Balance Salafi jihadist groups as well. Whether or not the capability is there, however, um, is an entirely different question. That that's exactly the critical point. I think we can take some satisfaction collectively, United States, Australia, our closest five ice partners, but a broader set of partners around the world, that we have made it far more difficult to achieve that kind of mass casualty catastrophic attack of the sort that was mounted uh at the time of nine eleven, or even in Bali. Um the the intelligence capacity that we collectively have brought to the brought to the table, our ability to identify actors as they engage with other terrorist actors and plot and plan something of that magnitude, uh, we've just again we've just created significant barriers to that. And at the same time, we also know that it was not um, there was not a consensus even within within Al Qaeda at the time of nine eleven that, that that was the proper path to follow. And I would suspect that if even if capacity and capability were achieved by one of these terrorist organizations, there would still be a robust debate inside the organization about whether that would actually advance the goals of the organization. You could argue, if you look at it from the perspective of some of the Al-Qaeda or ISIS-affiliated organizations around the world, that they are prospering and thriving right now in an atmosphere where they can carry out their local agendas free of the pressure that might flow on them if they were subject to a GWAT, a global war on terrorism of the sort we saw in the aftermath of 9-11. The United States and partners has kind of shrunk its global footprint in terms of going after of these terrorist actors in all of the different conflict zones around the world. And that is opportunity for these organizations to be more successful with their local agenda. And they may not want to disturb that, that, uh, that state of affairs. I think the, the strategic point there is a really important one. So an example of that that I think is relevant here uh, actually relates to Al-Shabaab, which is obviously quite um, topical at the minute, which is in Australia, we did have a, a cell of individuals who uh, who aligned themselves with al-Shabaab's ideology uh, and who were quite determined to conduct an attack on Australian soil. But they needed al-Shabaab's blessing. Uh, so they called um, the, the sheikh in question numerous times and he uh, refused to give them permission to conduct the attack. And, and that was multiple, multiple times. Uh, so eventually the cell sent a member to Al-Shabaab and uh, sent him through the training camps in the hope that he would be able to develop um, the rapport required to get the permission to conduct the attack. Uh, and he did so poorly 
uh, in the training circumstances that he lasted about two weeks uh, before he was um, given a, a ticket home. And that person, obviously, is Yacoub Kayer, one of the um, members who was associated with the cell. Uh, and essentially, they they did attempt, or they did uh, attempt to conduct the attack regardless of that permission. Um, but what I think this was quite a key point of, which is you can have um, the strategic considerations at play at the leadership of an organization or a network, um, but then you've also got the ideological considerations as well. Um, and I think that in terms of calibrating which one is going to win out, it's not a, a matter of these two points being intention, but rather these points are intention within every mm. single individual within a network or an organization. So it, it really is quite a difficult thing uh, to calibrate. And maybe I'll just add one last point on this. Will you know? Yes, we can take some comfort, perhaps, in the fact that we have made that large mass casualty attack harder, created more barriers to prevent it. But it still remains true that even far lesser attacks of lesser size and scope can really drive politics in our respective societies, can cause us to pursue significant policy shifts. Um, again, just use Afghanistan as a case study. Imagine if we were to suffer an attack in the West that was linked somehow to Taliban-supported al-Qaeda activity emanating from Kabul, it's hard to imagine there wouldn't be significant pressure on the United States at a political level to revisit some of the decisions made. I'm not saying there would be a, mm. a reoccupation of Afghanistan or a large introduction of, of a U.S. Um, troop footprint there, but there would certainly be political pressure to do something about that, perhaps even out of proportion to the actual costs human costs of the attack we might have suffered. And so um, in some of my conversations with Australian government colleagues, we both confessed to each other that we suffer sometimes from a zero tolerance for terrorist activity in our respective societies, which can lead us in the direction of having to take significant policy swings, not as a matter of strategy, but because we're reacting to something awful that has happened. Mm. I, and I think that's a, that zero tolerance is so important in the Australian context because we have not suffered on our own soil a mass casualty terrorism event. And in fact, we we narrowly missed one um, with the Etihad bomb plot, which would have seen over 400 people essentially die in the skies above Sydney. Now, that was that's an incredible uh, attack to have thwarted almost accidentally at the time. Um, and, and I think maybe that leads us to think of mass casualty terrorism as um, something that is perhaps uh, – of, of greater likelihood than some of the other uh, operations that could potentially be extremely damaging. So, for example, um, as we saw with the 6th of January uh, situation, the, there is a very real uh, risk in Western democracies of insider threats, mm. of um, of individuals or organisations, maybe they're um, internally motivated, maybe they're externally motivated or externally funded, um, conducting uh, attacks against their own democratic infrastructure, which could actually have this incredible um, impact, almost, uh, uh, again, an asymmetric outcome on society if you were to, say, um, you know, uh, uh, target senior political leaders, for example. So uh, I think when it comes to how we conceptualise um, the future of um of violent action by by any extremist group, we need to remember that yes, um, mass casualty terrorism is, is a very real threat, but there are other threats there as well, which could also severely damage um, our society and our way of life. Well, on that, thank you, uh, Christy. Thank you, Nick, for being so generous with your insights and expertise. <laughs> 